Welcome to Halls View Art Podcast Show, reading an extract from the book. Very British problems, making life awkward for oneself one rainy day at a time. Rob Tunbull. Introduction. Hello, my name is Rob. I suffer from very British problems. If you're reading this, I assume you are. I hazard a guess you too are suffering from this confusing, distressing and often embarrassing malaise. Before we begin, it's important to you to know, far from alone in living in this condition, there are millions of sufferers, both in Great Britain and, least we forget, sometimes further afield. Let's go, come, so come in, sit down, help yourself to a cup of tea and try to relax. It's, you're safe here. Let me start telling you a little about, about how I first came to study this specific area of neurosis. For years, I, I too thought I was alone in suffering from the strange ailment, debilitated by some sort of severe neurological disorder, some sort of undiagnosed anxiety-related illness. Yet no professor, quack, therapist, or witch doctor could provide me with a satisfactory diagnosis. So against all medical advice, I turned to the internet. You may be able or not, you may or may not know that this book, this behavioural study, was born out of a Twitter feed that, was go, that goes by the same name, so very, so very British. Anxious to get to the bottom of things, yet another, after another long year of awkwardness, I started it a few days before Christmas 2012, start posting a few more of these strange situations, which my family and I it always suffer, as I imagined, and genetic repeated. They found themselves. It was a desperate time. I'm not quite sure what I hoped to achieve. Maybe only a few people would recognise themselves in the post, and perhaps we could form a small support group. By the end of the year, over 100,000 people were following so very British, so at so very British, British. So I write another four months down in line. We just passed 300,000 mark. Hundreds of thousands of people, all finding a common bond, all suffering what I've come to refer to very British problems, or you probably know it by its now BBP. Bolstered by its strongly findings, I continue to document the common signs of VPP, and soon spotting them everywhere, from the man on the street to historical documents <coughs> and television programs and films, examples of which are set Chapter 19. When I say you're not alone, I really mean, I do really mean it. Many of you would suspect that you're only borderline sufferers, and those in the category the test turned to chapter 3. We help you not spot the common symptoms that guide you towards the diagnosis. Having said this, I must warn you, a test that can prove inconclusive, as people with BP often deny about the severity of their problems. Regardless of the fact, there's a quick and free consolation to help you decide whether you need a book. If you like me, A. Regularly apologise to the person ramming you with the shopping trolley. B. Waking, waking cold sweats from a nightmare about being invited to say a bit about yourself in a public forum. And C. If you're thinking about the weather right at this very instant, don't deny it. You're afraid it doesn't look very good. I'm very sorry that to have to tell you there's no cure for BPP. I often manage my manage my condition. I'm under condition control. I only relax completely without warning. 
One minute, minute acting like a complete normal human being, and it's covered by nausea, by the very idea of finding a very reserved seat occupied at the start of a train journey. A train journey I had, wasn't even due to take for another month. Very British problems are high on, nigh on impossible to treat, because it's so ingrained in our psyche, tucked away, hidden behind confusing sayings, strange tricks, bizarre customs, and double meanings. If a sufferer be, be BP ever tells you, you'll find back slowly out of the room. We're walking freshly sacks of volatile manners, just barely held in check, concealed between bit stiff upper lips, ready to burst open and bury the streets in a landslide of terrible rage, if heaven forbid we ever run out of tea. Why do very British problems occur? I'm afraid this book does not deal with the oranges of VDP. Quite Frankly, I have no idea. I still, I shall leave that conundrum to experts more qualified than I. Indeed, there are many books already available on this very topic. No, this book is simply a guide to self-diagnosis, a way to aid you in spotting a classic case to help you to get to know your symptoms, to create a picture of what the future may hold. Falling, failing above, I only hope to find some comfort. Good luck and sorry. Rob Temple London, 2013. Playing it cool. Come on, some some fellow or pal. We're expecting having to enter a full conversation. With always you're not actually, which reveals you're not actually capable at all. Getting to work early to at least possible number of people. Notice you're wearing a trendy new jacket. Attempting the handshake tip and dropping a pound coin on the floor. Best left to Americans. Feeling obliged to ask a taxi driver, been busy, but staying silent for the rest of the journey. They're staying silent for the rest of the journey. Entering the mild panic. If anyone, if unable to pick the correct amount of change from your hand within three seconds, being told of two one at the till, leading to you attempt to look eager while running back through the supermarket, searching for a second packet of mints, wondering what you become. Where the goodbye wave actually turns into a bit of a cheeky salute. Avoiding parks throughout the summer to reduce the chance of football rolling over you. Panicking and thrusting your hand up when, you, when there's a problem in self-service to take out, regardless of the flashing of the huge flashing light. Hoping you look like James Bond every time you put on the ginger jacket, only to end up resembling Ronnie Corbett. Getting dressed at speed of light and the instant message says, I'll give you ten minutes to relax. Looking into having your hands surgically removed or waxing as someone who's waving at someone behind you. I'm certainly moved off to waving at someone who's waving at you, someone behind you. A shame pulling out a double cheek kiss too early and attempting to re-enter after a moment's pass. Someone so, so, calling someone geezer and knowing you haven't, haven't pulled it off. You instantly leaves your lips. Knowing, see, hoping not to be seen, trying at the cash point by a person told you it wasn't working, pretending to believe, be believed you, you agree with the doctor. You don't need the powerful medication you want in strictly to try and attain. Feeling it's right moment to attempt to cheek, you wink, regretting immediately and trying to pretend you actually have something in your eye. Changing to attempt to deal with the seeds while holding a scolding cup of tea 
the surface free area. Finding yourself doing the twist in left if left unsupervised and a wedding plant starts floor for more than a minute, getting too excited when you see your come down on the news. Deciding to preserve with a clasping and shaking whole apertage when offered a fist bump by youngster. Looking at it as if you're acting as acting practicing a sound of waltz while potentially attempting to remove something unfortunate from your brogue. Realising your process of exiting a lift on the wrong floor and ploughing on regardless. Running on the bus, missing it and carrying on the run for a short while. You've been listening to a very British problems, making life... Making Life All Good on Oneself on One Rainy Day by Rob Temple. Ozuima Podcast Show, The Gateway to Hell. Or is it the gateway to hell? A cave has recently been found in the Midlands with anti-witch marks. If there was a gateway to hell, a portal from the underworld, used by demons and witches to wreck their evil havoc on the humanity, then it may be a small east of the Midlands cave, handy for both the M1 and A60. Heritage experts have revealed that the fault would be the biggest concentration of anthropocarchic marks or symbols of wand, ruled off evil and misfortune, ever found in the UK. The markings at Craigswell Craig Kegs Limestone Gorge and Nottinghamshire Derbyshire border could hundreds of letters, symbols and patterns carved at a time when beliefs in witchcraft were widespread. The scale and variety of the marks made on limestone walls and ceilings of the cave, which are centre at a deep, dark hole, is unprecedented. Believed to be protected against, go- against witches and curses, the marks are discovered by chance which is also a chance at the site, which is also home to the only art ever discovered in the UK. Paul Baker, the director of the Crowswell Heritage Trust, said the marks have been in plain sight. They have known where they were there, but we told people it was a Victorian graffiti, graffiti, he said. We had no idea. Can you imagine how stupid we felt? Trust was alerted to make the marks last year by Haley Clark and Ed Walters, two keen-eyed cowavers. Thought they would perhaps two or three markings. Soon claimed to dozens, and on further investigation, up to a thousand and counting. They're everywhere, said Baker. How scared were they? There was no public access to the cave, but the Trust is considering multimedia presentation for visitors. Up close, the walls are very remarkably friendly marks. Everywhere you point a torch, there are overlapping V's, a reference to Mary, Virgin of Virgins. There are also PMs in Passa Maria. The cross is in front of Jesus on the cross. The odd-shaped IS. Alison Fern, a Lancashire Leicester University expert on protective marks, called first shuffling on her backside into the cave. Realising what she was looking at, I think I said a very naughty word. A letter and symbols were a Christian, but it should not be looked at in the context, she said. The 16th century t- 
to the early 19th century, when people made witches' marks, they may, they may have lack of association with religion, such as the day when people might cross fingers and say, Oh God, she said. It, it may become a, it, may, it just became a protective single. It was a mark you always made to protect yourself. What the marks were already were keeping out or in can even be speculating. Could be fairies, witches, whatever you were fearful of. Going to be down here, there. Which the cave markings fit into local history since the pre-medieval pre- village of Crowswell used to be over much closer to caves. The Dukes of Portland had to relocate the village 20 miles minutes walk away during a spot of 19th century landscaping for themselves. John Charlesworth, the case heritage interpreter, and natural la- said natural landscapes were once regarded as scary places. They are places where supernatural forces an untamed and non-human environment could be at work. Local people are always in the jaws of this monstrous landscape. Realistic protection marks are most commonly found in houses and churches, and doors and windows to ward off evil spirits. They found the cave, but never on this scale. Craigslist keg hit the headlines 2003 when Ice Age cave art, including figures of birds, but Deer, bosun, and horses were discovered. The latest find was made by Craigsville Craigs in the historic London, England. Baker acknowledged that the witch's marks might bring a new type of visitor. Roland, Roland Hunter Houghton, a professor and leading authority of folklore, said the find was hugely important. Exciting. Looks like the Largest assembly protected marks were ever found in British caves and possibly anywhere in the Britain. You've been listening to Halsey Vermont Popcorn Show. I've been talking about the gateway to hell. Caves in Crowswell, England. Hi, welcome to Halsey Vermont Popcorn Show. And today I'm talking about Lopaka Cap and Nenu. L O P A K A K A P A P A N U I. Lopaka Kapanu is a native Hawaiian storyteller, writer, actor, Kulamahulu. Ruler, cultural practitioner, former professional wrestler, husband, father, and grandfather, sometimes known as the ghost guy. Doug Parker makes a business of leading guests into some of the darkest, spookiest places on the island of Ula Alaha. O A H U. Born and raised on Alaha. Spend his childhood summers on Hawaii Island and visiting Maui frequently with his family. Lok Parker grew up hearing all the old legends of ghost stories from his elders. His family's history, legends, history, customs, and protocol all passed to Lok Parker in traditional Hawaiian way through Mola. Oh, from mouth to ear. 
sitting at the top of feet, sitting at the feet of his mum and his auntie, as they related lessons to him. He learned the night, the night marches that only appeared during a particular moon phase. Then why it's important to never share food with anyone while walking through a haunted place. He also learned the significance of the proper prayers to offer ceremonial blessings to enter or leave a sacred place to ask for protection and forgiveness before gathering greenery in the depths of Hawaiian forests and the importance of intent. Additionally, he was taught that responsibility which would come with what he was going to inherit would have to one day be passed down within his own family. A new menu and curry was what his mother and aunt always say at the end of his lesson, the knowledge must continue. In March 1994, Lepaka followed a friend's recommendation and went on a ghost tour with famed historian and author of Obrenkin Fowls and the skin, Chicken Skins ghost story series, Glenn Grant. At the time, there was no idea he was about to meet his future mentor. Lepaka quickly realised the stories that Glenn told were some tales of legends and history that his own companion shared with him. Dan was the original creator of Omar's first ghost tours, setting the stage for a future all other ghost tours in Hawaii. Glenn was an adamant about researching every story, every fact instilled his ethic in the poker, as well as setting nothing less than excellent excellence. If you make a mistake or get something wrong, it's not, the bad, it's not that bad because I'm a holer. People expect me to make mistakes, Glenn said. But you are La Poca. You're Hawaiian. You're from here. And you're, allowed, you're not allowed to make those same mistakes. After him passing in 2003, La Parker carried on the business at Haunt for a short time and then created his own tour business. First as Ghosts of Hawaii, Old Hawaii, a tribute to Glenn, and then Mysteries of Hawaii, Honolulu. It is through Mysteries of Honolulu that La Parker followed the footsteps of his close friend and mentor, and honours men who meant him so much to him. Inspired by Glenn's constant encouragement to go do more, be more, the Parker began writing, chronicling, and supernatural experiences of himself. In other words, the Parker's business transitioned into how mysteries of Hawaii, spending his storytelling and tours to the neighbouring islands. It's progressing. The legends and mystery of this island state. After acquiring the trade name Chickenstein, La Parker, along with his wife and brother partner Tanya, took looked to share the legacy of Hawaii on an even greater level. Having been in the story business for more telling business for more than twenty years, hundreds of people come forward to share their own stories with La Parker, as we well make him responsible of sorts of some of the island's spookiest tales. You can get listen to Hawaiian Folklore, episode four six seven La Paka Kamuro Spooky South Coast. Here's an example. Focusing on some of your adventures that you've been having lately, we'll be joined in just a little bit by, I want to make sure I say it right, Lopaka Kapanui. 
Yep. Hey, see, I should be in radio. <laughs> and uh, he will join us to talk about not only some Hawaiian legends and lore, but also you guys have had something pretty profound that has happened to you in association with your trip out there. It has been by far the craziest situation of my life. Um, <clears throat> take a break and talk. I will. Go ahead. Okay, great. So, <laughs> He's furiously yeah. writing notes. He is, just, but I haven't written anything, so we're just, I think we just need to do it organic and raw. We because, can do it organic and raw. Honest to God, I've been telling this story now for, since we got back. So yes. we've been back for almost a month, and everybody that I've spoken to about it, the reaction has been insane. There have been times where I've questioned my own sanity, uh, even as recently as two days ago. And yes. it's been wild. And this is, honest to God, as a psychic and a medium... And yes, those are two separate things. And the way that I've communicated, the places that I've been all over the world, I have never been hit this hard. I have never been rocked to the core as hard as I have with this particular scenario since I stepped foot on Hawaii, but it's also continued since I've been home. This is like beyond anything paranormal. This is beyond anything that you could even think up. This is, it's insane. And some people might say, okay, well, it's happening to you because you're a psychic medium, but it's happening to Scott too. So, yes, it's crazy. Uh, that, that's the thing. I think well, that's what really you know sets it apart from any other type of interaction we've ever had is that it, it's not isolated to just one person. And then when we get into telling our stories, whether it be we first wake up in the morning and we're like, "Holy cow! Did what did you dream last night? Or what did you see last night? Or what you know? Or, or I'm listening to something that she's telling me that she saw, and and I experienced the same thing, or a complimentary dream." You can hear more on episode 467 Hawaiian Folklore, the Baka Kumuri. You've been listening to the Halls of Remark podcast show. I've been talking about the Baka Kumuri. V Wars, read by Mark Anthony Rains. On behalf of the Holes of Vimark Podcast Show. Origin of Communication, Jonathan Mowbray. Personnel. Visual reference and Andrew Robinson. Visual advancement. Trey Photos. Described Robbie Robbins. Authorized and clear David Hedgecock. Personal confidential level three clearance required. CDC information pending. Melting Arctic ice possible origin point for release of travel virus. Virus triggering dormant genes from junk DNA. Genes that have once created vampires. Infection rates currently low, but reports from major population worldwide continue to come in. Without methods of containment, looking at global pandemic of epidemic proportions, characteristics of transmission vary and appear regularly based. Common theme appears to be unnatural and unsuitable hunger. They are here. They are hidden amongst us. They hide 
They hunt us, they feed on us, they are us. Intimate transmission. Journal of Luther Swan, PhD, Day 212, The Vampire War. Embedded with Special Operation Field Team Victor B. B8, San Diego, California. This is the world. Blood and fire. That's what the world's become. Us and them. Eight months ago, all I had to worry about was grading papers and using eternity products. Then trivial the ice virus. Disease released for the melting polar ice triggered junk DNA active a, a gene that we didn't know we had. The gene had caused vampirism. Turns out it wasn't a myth. So much for my folklore to read. So much for Hollywood. Vampires are, were real. Maybe a mutation. Maybe a violation of Homo sapiens. The science is still fuzzing. Tests are ongoing. All we know is certain that they're real here. And everyone could become infected at any time. Anyone. All we carry, we all carry the gene. It's, it started slow with one man, a Batista in New York, named Michael Faney. He went through, he went crazy, started killing women, tearing them apart, drinking their blood. Faney let himself be arrested. He was terrified of what he was becoming. He didn't want to hurt anyone. The police brought me in to become, because all the books are written on folklore and myths on, on vampires. I tried to help them, tried to help everyone, tried to understand what was happening. But Fane had succumbed to the primal drive to hunt and feed. That was the hardware in his DNA. The day ended badly for everyone. It would have been, it would have, would have been bad enough if it just one instant. It was just, it was just Fane. But as I did, I, I, one vi, ev one, virus was out there, already spread around among the world, already transforming, infected. Maybe there was a point where science could stop it. If so, that moment passed before Fane came patient zero. After that, it's far too late. The people reacted exactly the way people do, with fear, with hatred, with intolerance. Because I know vampires better than anyone. I got bumped from police advisor to presidential advisor. Like I could do any good before Fane. This is just a myth to me. It was someone else's belief, not mine. 
believe this. I didn't believe in anything. But everyone believes in monsters. You just It's just that everybody, not everybody knows who the actual monsters are. Only a small percentage of the affected are killers. Most are simply afraid of what they've come and uncertain how they fit in the world. They come in all shapes and sizes, just like in folklore. Some can pass as humans, some can't. Imperious mania, elves, black sparkers, so many hundreds of species. It's just like you step right out of the pages of my textbook. Many embrace the change. They didn't go hunting. Sometimes I think they only that they're the only same ways in this ones in this world. God knows not all of the humans are the same. The more the humans pushed as the more the humans fist pushed at infected, the more the vampires pushed back. It went very it got very ugly very fast. I kept trying to explain that, mo- that most of these vampires are a threat, are victims of disease, but the most most wars, the wrong people are the ones being getting killed. Some of the vampires organize they got smart, they got armed, they wanted to hit back. What's wrong and they are they wrong to fight who who for who they are? A colleague professor I'm a college professor. Go ask a philosopher. Go ask God. Tell me now if you let got an answer. No, big done. They went in there. You, how can you fight this kind of a war? How can you win a war when your brother, your wife, or your soldier online next to you can turn at any time? All I can do is fight to keep things from falling apart. And to try to find a way to fix this. I've been with a V8 for weeks now. Field advisor, I hope, sanity check. Trying to find, help these soldiers keep touch with their humanity. They don't lose all sight of humanity in the, the vampires. Is it's it it's there. Who do you think? How now, John? Who the hell would I know? I got you, darling. I swear it. I swear it is. The real hope is to help find solution, not open the door for genocide. So far, it's a vain hope. Maybe a false hope. Hardest part for me is seeing how the war is stealing everyone's humanity. We're supposed to be fighting for something to save the world, to save the ones we love. No, you can't. We have to run a field check on them. 
but every day the distinction between us and them gets blurred. Get the hell out of here, away. I'll put you down, Doc. Don't think I'm lying. I'm not sure I know the difference between man and monster. Not anymore. No, not my baby. Don't hurt my baby. I'm not a fighter. Nor a killer. I'm an epidemic. I'm not made for killing. For war. I'm trying to be the voice of reason here. Don't even kill spiders. I let myself... If I let myself like become like everyone else, who I, who will I be? Let, who will I be? What part of me will be left? So sweet. But how can anyone stand aside in a world like this? You get get some son of a bitch. And that's when the real twist, isn't it? How do you deal with a philosophic or moral stance? when everybody is forced to be either a combatant or a victim. How do, can we afford not to be monsters when only a monster can survive? Where's Gainley? Where's Sanity? Where's choice? Another battle over. The, over. Today the humans won. It's not always that way. Right now, the way the war could go either way. Good to go. Go, Doc. A few scars to brag about. Cheeks, big, big scars. I know my part, my vi- I advise the feds. I roll out with VH and civilians on Viser. I try to help, but every time I am at sad saddle up, I become less and less who I am. Maybe, maybe less human, less innocent. In a war like this, how many of us are truly innocent anymore? Being a monster isn't really about who's human and who's not, but who's holding on to the thread of what defines us as humans. And what I'm going, uh, what I do, so when I, and I do what I do, so that they are, they will be protected. So maybe we can, we can end this war before it comes anywhere near, it comes anywhere near them. Or they always be, so they will always be safe from the monsters. Yes, this is my world. This is the House of Imam Podcast Show. And you've been listening to V-Wars, Issue 1. The Sunday Times bestseller by C.J. Tudor. Extracts from the book.
prologue. The girl's head rested on a small pearl of orange and brown leaves. Her almond eyes stared up in the canopy of sycamore, beech and oak. He didn't see the tentative fingers of sunlight that poked through the branches and sprinkled the woodland floor with gold. He didn't blink as shiny black beetles scurried over their pupils. He didn't see anything anymore except darkness. A short distance away, a pale hand stretched out from its own small shroud of leaves, as if searching for help or reinsurance, but he was not alone. None was none was it to be found. The rest of her body lay out of reach, hidden in almost secluded spots around the woods. Close by, a twig snapped and loud as a firecracker in the stillness, and a flurry of birds exploded out of the undergrowth. Someone approached. They knelt down beside the unseen girl, their hands gently caressing her hair, and stroked her cold cheek, fingers trembling with anticipation. Then they lifted her head, dusted off a few leaves, and clung to the ragged edges of her neck, and placed it carefully in the bag, where it nestled among a, sh- a few broken stubs of chalk. After a moment's consideration, they reached in and closed their eyes. They, then they zipped the bag shut, stood up, and carried it away. Some hours later, police officers and forensic team arrived. They numbered, photographed, and examined everything, and eventually took the girl's body to the morgue. It lay for several weeks of it waiting completion. It never came. There were excessive researches, questions, appeals, but despite its best effort, efforts of all the detectives, all the town's men, a head was never found. The girl in the woods was never put together again. 2.2016 started at the beginning. problem was none of them ever agreed on the exact beginning. Was it when Fat Gav got the buckets of chalk for his birthday? Was it when he started drawing the chalk figures, when they started to appear on their own? Was it the terrible accident, or was it the first, when they found their first, the first body? Any number of guineas, any of them, I guess, would be called the start. But I really, I think all began the day of the bear. That's the day I really I remember most, because of walks ago, obviously, but also because it was the day that everything stopped being normal. In, in, if our world was a snow globe. It was the day came casual guard along long came along, shook it hard and set it down again. But even when the foam and flakes had settled, things weren't the way they were before. Not exactly. They might have looked the same though. And glass, but on the inside everything was different. This is the day I met Mr Halloran. So as beginnings go, I suppose it's good as any. Going to be a storm today, Eddie. My dad was found fond of forecasting the weather in a deep, authoritative voice, like the people on the dully. He always said he was absolutely certain, even though he was actually usually wrong. I glanced out the window to a perfect blue sky, so it's bright blue. I had to squint a little to look at it. Don't look at the like that, like that the, there. Could be a storm, Dad? I said for a mouthful of what, cheese sandwich. That's because there isn't going to be one, Mum said, but having entered the kitchen slowly and silently like some kind of ninja warrior. BBC says it's going to be hot and sunny all weekend, and don't speak with your mouthful. 
Eddie, she added, mm, Dad said, which is what he always said when he disagreed with Mum, but didn't share, didn't dare say she was wrong. No one ever dared disagree with Mum. Mum was actually still is kind of scary. She's tall with dark, short dark hair, brown hair eyes, like a bubble with fun or a blaze of black when she was angry, a bit like the Incredible Hulk. You didn't want to make her hang- angry. Mum was a doctor, but not a normal doctor, who sewed up people's legs and gave you injections for stuff. Dad once told me she helped women who were in trouble. He didn't say what kind of trouble, but I suppose it had to be pretty bad when he needed a doctor. Dad worked too, but from home. He was a writer for magazines and newspapers. Not all the time. Sometimes he moaned, and no one wanted to give him any work or say with a bitter laugh. Just not my audience this month, Eddie. The kid didn't feel like he had a proper job. Not for a dad. A dad would wear a suit and tie, go off to work in the mornings and come home to the evening for tea. My tea, for tea. My dad went to work in the spare room and sat at a computer in his pyjamas and t-shirts, sometimes without brushing his hair. My dad didn't even didn't look much like advertising either. He had a big bushy beard and long hair. He tied back in a phone jail. He wore cut-off jeans, holes in them, in. Even in winter, faded T-shirts with the names of ancient bands like Led Zeppelin and who sometimes he wore sandals too. Fat Gav said my dad was a freaking hippie. He's probably right, but even then, I took it on an also and pushed him. Him and the body slammed me. I staggered off home with some new bruises and a bloody nose. We made up later, of course. Fat Gav could be a right penis head, but he's one of those kids who are always there. I always have to be loud and most obnoxious, so put off the real bodies. He was also, oh, but he was also one of my best friends and most loyal and generous person I knew. You look after your friends, Eddie Munster, he once said to me solemnly. Friends are everything. Eddie Munster was my nickname. That's because my surname was Adams, like the Adams family. Of course, the kid in the Adams family was called Pugsley. And Eddie Munster was out of the Munsters. But it's, it made sense at the time. And that way the nicknames do. It stuck. Eddie Munster, Fat Gav, Mickey on account of his huge braces and his teeth. Hippo Dave, Hopkins and Nicky. That was our game. Nicky didn't have a nickname because she was a girl. Even though she tried her best to pretend she wasn't. She swore like a boy. climbed trees like a boy. Could fight almost as well as most boys. But still looked like a girl. Pretty, really pretty girl, a long red hair and pale skin, sprinkled with lots of tiny brown freckles. Not that I ever really noticed or anything. We all, we were all due to meet up that Saturday. We met some Saturdays and went round to each other's houses or to the playground or sometimes the woods. This Saturday was special though because it was a fair. It came every year and set up on a park near the river. This year was the first year we were being allowed to go out on our own without an adult to supervise. We've been looking forward to it for weeks, ever since the posters went out around town. There were going to be dodgems of meteorite and a pirate ship and an orbiter. I thought ace. So, I said, finishing my cheese sandwich as quickly as I could. I said we'd meet the others outside the park at two. Well, stick to the main roads, walking down there. Mum said, don't do anything taking any shortcuts or anything, or anybody you don't, talking to anybody you don't know, I won't, 
I slid, slid from my seat and headed to the door. I take your bum back. Oh, ma'am, you're going on rides. Your wallet, you fall out of your pocket. Bum bag, no arguments. I opened my mouth and shut it again. I could feel my cheeks burning. I hated the stupid bum bag. Fat tourists for all bum bags. It would look would not like look cool in the front of everyone, especially Nicky. But when Mum was like this, it really was no arguing. Fine, it wasn't. But I could see the kitchen clock edging clo- closer towards two, and I needed to get going. I ran up the stairs, grabbed the stupid bum bag, put my money aside, a whole five pound, a fortune. When I changed, back, 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 charged back down again. See you later. Have fun. There was no doubt in my mind. I would. The sun was shining. I had my favourite t-shirt on, my converse. I already hear the faint thump, thump of the playground music. I smell the burgers and candy floss. Today is going to be perfect. Fat Gav, Hippo, Mickey, Metal Mickey, already waiting for the gates when I ride. Hi, Edwin Munster. Nice funny pack, Fat Gav yelled. I blushed purple and gave him the finger. Hippo and Metal Mickey both chuckled at Fat Gav's joke. Then Hippo was always nicest. And a peacemaker said to Fat Gab, At least he doesn't look as gay as your shorts, penis head. Fat Gab grinned, grabbed his shorts and the hems, did a little dance, raising his cheeky legs up like he was a ballerina. That was the thing with Fat Gab. You never really insult him because he didn't care. Or at least that's why what he made everyone think. Anyway, I said, because, because despite Hippo's deflection, I still felt the funny bag looked stupid. I'm not wearing it. I unclipped the belt, slipped my b- 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 wallet into my shorts pocket and looked around. A thick hedge was around the outside of the park. I stuffed the pound bag in the hedge so it wouldn't be seen if you were walking past. But far, so far I couldn't grab it again later. Sure you want to leave it there? Hippo asked. Yeah, what if your mummy finds out? Mickey said inside song, song way he had. Though he's part of our gang, Fat Gav's best friend. I never liked making metal misery much. There's a streak running through him that was cold as ugly as the braces ran through his mouth. But then, bearing in mind who his brother was, perhaps it wasn't so very surprising. I don't care, I lied with a shrug. Who does? Fat Gav said impatiently. Can we forget the friggin' bag and get going? I want to get to the officers first. Metal Mickey and Hippo started to move. He usually did what Fat Gave wanted, probably because he was the largest and loudest. But but Nicky's not here yet, I said. So what? Mickey, Metal Mickey said. She's always late. Let's go. He'll find us. Metal Mickey was right. Nicky's always late. On the other hand, he wasn't, that wasn't a deal. We were all supposed to sit together. It wasn't safe at the, on the ferry own, especially for a girl. Let's give her five more minutes, I said. You cannot be serious, Fat Gave explained. Doing his best so badly, pretty badly, bad. John Macaron impression. Pat Gave did a pre- lot of impressions, mostly American. All terrible. They made made us crease up with laughter. Mick and Mickey didn't care quite as, laugh quite as hard as Hippo and me. He didn't like it if we felt the gangs were, were going against him. But anyway, it didn't matter because he was just about to stop laughing when a familiar voice said, "What's so funny?" We turned, Nicky walked up the hill towards us. As always, I liked a weird kid kind of fluttering in my stomach at the sight of her. Like a sunny, feeling hungry, felt a bit sick. 
Her red hair was all loose today, falling in a tangled jumble down her back, almost blushing, brushing the edges of frayed denim shorts. She wore a yellow sleeveless blouse with small blue flowers around her neck. I caught a glint of silver in her throat, a small cross of a chain. She had a large and heavy-looking hessling bag slung around her shoulders. You're late, Mickle Mickey, said. We're waiting for you, If, if, as if he had been his idea. What's in the bag, Kipper said. My dad wants me to deliver the crap around the fair. She pulled a leaf from the bag and held it out. Come to St. Anne Thomas's church. Praise the Lord, it's the greatest thrill of all. Oh, Mickey's dad was a vicar at a local church. I had, no, had no, never actually been to church. My mother and dad didn't do that type of stuff, but I seen him round town. He wore small round glasses. His bald skirt was covered with freckles like Nicky's nose. He's always smiled and said hello. I found him a little bit scary. Now that's a pile of stinking backaroo, my man, Pat Gove said. Stinking of... Well, flying backaroo was another one of Fat Gov's favourite phrases, usually followed by saying, My man, a really posh accent for some reason. You're not really going going to, are you? I asked, suddenly envisioning the whole day being wasted, transiting around with Nikki while she handed out leaflets. She had to take me a look. It might be a bit my mum. Of course I'm not, you Joey, she said. We'd, we'd just take some, scatter them round, like people have thrown them round anyway, and then stuff the rest in the bin. We all grinned. There was nothing better than doing something you didn't, you shouldn't be getting one over on an adult while doing it. We scattered leaflets, dumped the bag, and got back to business. The orbiter, which really was ace, the dodgers were in fact going round me so hard, I felt a, my signs crack. Space rockets pretty exciting last year, but now a bit boring. Held a sculpture, a motorbike, and a pirate ship. We ate hot dogs, fat game, and Nicky tried to hoop ducks and learn the hard way that a prize every time does not necessarily mean a prize you want. They game away laughing and throwing their crappy little stuffed animals at each other. At this point, the afternoon was getting away from us. The feel and adrenaline was starting to fade along with a glowing realisation. I probably had enough cash left for two or maybe three more rides. I reached into my pocket for my luck. My heart leapfrogged into my mouth. It was gone. Shit. What? I asked. My wallet. I lost it. You sure? Of course I'm fucking sure. I checked my other pocket in just in case both empty crap. Well, where did you have it last? Nicky asked. I tried to think. I knew I had it had it last ride before I checked. But plus we took hot we both we brought hot dogs afterwards. I didn't go to the hot the duck so hot dog stand. So the hot tool still was all the way across the fair, the opposite direction to orbit it and the meat ride. Shit, I said again. Come on, Hippo, let's go and look. What's the point, Mittelwerk, he said. Someone's uh, pinched it by now. I could you some money, Fat Gov said. But I haven't got much. I was pretty safe. This was a lie. Fat Gov always had more money than the rest of us. Just like he always had the best toys and newest shinies like. His dad owned one of the local pubs that Bill. His mum was an Avon lady. Fat Gov was generous. 
but I always knew he really wanted to go on some rides. I shook my head anyway. Thanks, it's okay. I w- it wasn't. I feel warm, feel tears burning behind my eyes. It was. It was just. It wasn't just an eye. It felt stupid. It's a spot day. I was knowing that Mum would be annoyed and say, "Holy so, you got to go on." I said, "Go back and take a look. No point of all this waiting on time." Come on, little Mercury said. Come on, let's go. They all shambled off. I could see they were relieved. It wasn't their money lost on that day, ruined. I started to trudge back across the fair towards the hot stop stand. It's right across the water, so I used that as a marker. You couldn't really miss out of the hole. Miss that old colonel right, right in the centre of the background. Maisie blared, distorted through the ancient speakers, multicolored lights flashed, and riders screamed as the wooden carriages spun around and round, faster and faster than the revolting revolving wooden carousel. As I got closer, I started looking down, shuffling along more carefully, scanning the ground. Rubbish hot dog wrappers. No wallet. Of course not. Mickle Mickey was right. Some of the maid would pick it up and nick my wallet, my money. I sighed and looked up. I spotted the pale man first. It wasn't his name, of course. I found that Arthur's was Mr. Holland. He was our new teacher. It's hard to miss a pale man. He's very tall, for a start and thin. He wore stone-washed jeans, a baggy white shirt and a big straw hat. He looked like the ancient 70s singer my mum liked, David Bowie. Pale man stood near the hot dog stand, drinking a pale blue sushi for a straw, watching the waltzers. Well, I thought he was watching the waltzers. I found myself look, looking in the same direction. That's when I saw the girl. I was still pissed off with my wallet, but also was a 12-year-old boy with hormones, just like the bubble and simmer. Nights in my room were always was always spent reading book, comic books, both torchlight under the co- bed covers. The girl was standing with a blonde friend I vaguely recognised around town. Her dad was a policeman or something. And my mind instantly dismissed her. It is a sad fact that the beauty, real beauty, that eclipses everything and everyone around it. Blue, blonde friend was pretty, but what's the girl? As I always think of her. Even after I learned her name, I was probably beautiful, tall and slim, with dark, long black hair, even longer legs, so smooth and brown and greened in the sun. She wore a railroad skirt and baggy vest which, with a lax scored on it over a fluorescent green bra top. She tucked her hair behind her ear, a gold hoop earrings glimmered in the sun. I was slightly ashamed to say I hadn't noticed her face at first, but she turned to talk. The blonde fed. I didn't disappoint. I wasn't disappointed. It was hotly pretty. Full lips and tilted arm and eyes. Then it, and then it was gone. One minute she was there. Her face was there. The next there was a terrible eye drum wrenching noise like a great beast that bellowed from the bowels of the earth. Later I found out it was the sound of a shoe string being on the ancient water axis snapping. After too much use and too little maintenance, I saw a flash of silver, a face of half of it, and it smeared away, leaving a massive mass of gristle, bone and blood, so much blood, fractions of a second later, but I had a chance to open my mouth to scream. Something huge and purple and black came tearing past. It was a deafening crash, the loose walls of carriage smashing to the hot dog stall, a hell of flying metal and splinters of wood 
more screaming and yelling as people dived out of the way. I found myself bowled over and knocked to the ground. Other people fell on top of me. Someone's foot stamped down on my wrist. A knee clipped my head. A boot kicked me in the ribs. I yelped out, but someone managed to bundle me. So I thought, oh, I'll over. Then I yelped again. Works ago, lay next to me, mercifully, a hair had fallen on my face. I recognised the t-shirt. Crescent bar top. You know both are soaked through with blood. More blood ran down the leg. A second piece of sharp metal. A slice right through the bone, just below her knee. Her lower leg was barely hanging on, teethered only by stringy tendons. I started to scram away. She was obviously dead. I didn't do anything. I couldn't do anything. That was when her hand reached out and grabbed my arm. She turned her bloody, ravaged face toward me. Somewhere within all the red and single brown eyes stared at me. The, rest, the other rested limply on a ruined cheek. Help me, she rose. Help me. I wanted to run. I wanted to scream and and cry and be sick at, all, at once. I might have done all three if any if another large, firm hand hadn't clamped down on my shoulder. A soft voice hadn't said, It's okay. I know you're scared, but I need you to listen to me very carefully and just do what I say. I turned the power man, stared down at me. Only now I did I realise his face. Beneath the wind's wide stream hat was almost as white as his shirt. When his eyes were misty, translucent grey, he looked like a ghost or a vampire. Under, under any other circumstances, he probably would have been scared of him. But right now, he was an adult. I needed an adult to tell me what to do. You've been listening to an extract from Chalk Man, a Sunday Times bestseller by C.J. Tudor. Mark, podcast show, reading an extract from Little Liar, Two Styles of One Truth, by Lisa Bella Antoye. Part 1, Light, which is positive, holds dominion over darkness, which is negative. Joseph Mallard, William Turner. One, Angela, fight, fight, fight. Angela looked down at her knuckles and saw they were red. It wasn't her blood. A crowd was formed so fast. Pupils from her year, 12 and 13-year-olds, being elbowed out of the way by lads of 15. The ring of people around her pulsated as one. The eye of the fight was where she stood. Were only three or four foot feet wide. Kids pressed her close as they could get. A look, climbing on shoulders and pulling on school bags, but they also stayed back, gave room for violence, so the circle where Angela stood contracted and diluted like an iris. He didn't know how many people surrounded her. Everybody wanted to watch a fight, and a girl fight was even better, so long as it was a real one. This was a real one. He hadn't started it, but she was going to finish it. She was going to teach Jasmine a lesson. Blood was running through Jasmine's nostrils and her eyes were streaming, but it didn't look as if she was actually crying. Angela actually cried. Angela would sort that out. She took her by the hair and forced her down onto the floor. Jasmine's hands were easy to get hold of because it's so big and bushy. As soon as she was, at, was on the ground, Angela began to kick her, 
Jasmine rolled up in, like, into a ball and covered her face with her elbows and hands. So Angela kicked her hard on her thighs. She kicked her so hard it jarred her hip. But it wasn't enough. She wanted to really show her. Angela heard her, her deep male voices and knew the teacher to ride the, break the, up the fight. She didn't have much time. She grabbed another fistful of Jasmine's hair and at the same time put her foot on the girl's wrist, pinning her back, that body to the ground. Angela gritted her teeth and pulled as hard as she could. Just as the eye of the crowd ruptured and separated, she pulled away by one teacher, while another knelt on the end of Jasmine, who was now screaming and writhing on the ground. Angela felt dizzy, happy, high. She didn't recognise the teacher that was marching her body elbow to the main building. All her limbs felt heavy, and she allowed herself to be led. A smile of achievement on her lips. Sit down, teacher ordered, when he reached the corridor where the head's office was. It was only her second year of the high school, but knew that was his corridor well. She did as she was told and sat down. It didn't matter, she shrugged to show that she didn't care. In her fist, she held a large clump of jasmine's light brown frizzy hair. Angela hunched over it to inspect it and saw that there was blood on the ends of it. She ripped it out. She it ripped it right out. If only her dad had come to get her. But of course it was her mum. An hour later, she and her mum were sat side by side at the head teacher's desk. Her head was called Mr Pickering. And Angela noticed that he had a food stain on his pale blue shirt. Angela had been at Croydon and Academy for over a year. This is the second time she had been in Mr Pickering's office. She slumped in her chair seat as she half listened to them going on and on. Andrew is a bully, said Mr Pickering. This thin lips, his thin lips pressed together. He did not tolerate bullying at Cumberland This was the third incident of unexpected bullying behaviour towards another, other pupils and level of violence today. Are really quite shocking. The pupil had Andrew attacked, needed medical attention, and be within her rights to press criminal charges. It would have been much more serious. Staff hadn't intervened when they had did. Angela's mum smelled a cigarette. She would have had one of it on the way here. Walking from the bus stop to the school, she always sat think more when she had a fag outside. What do you what do you have to say, Angela? Her mum asked, turning to her. Her voice was always different when she talked in front of the teachers, as if she was putting on a big act. Angela shrugged and turned away. She heard her mother's sigh lightly. There was a sound of Mr. Pickering shuffling papers on the desk. I know Angela's behaviour and academic performance primary were almost extraordinarily. Yeah, she was at the top of a class, I suppose. That works easier. Primary. That was typical of Donna. Angela did well. It was because she, the work was too easy. She did poorly. It was Angela's fault. It, it still doesn't explain the extreme change in performance and behaviour. They were all talking about her as if she wasn't there. Do you have an explanation for this, Angela? Mr Pickering raised his eyebrows as he want, waited for an answer. His hair was grey, his eyebrows were still black. So they, so they were, they looked like fake, stuck on. Angela glanced at the chipped nail polish with her finger, from a, with her phone nail. She tried to scrape a little more off. Her hands are still dirty from the fight. 
You're just teenagers, isn't it? Her mother offered in silence. But you're not thirteen yet, are you, Angela? said Mr Pickering, raising her voice a little. It's here she heard he had real problems. Why did he keep saying her name all the time? Angela, Angela, Angela. As if she didn't know who she was. He's thirteen soon enough. It all starts earlier now, doesn't it? Her mother answered for her. There were no problems at home. There are no problems at home, Mr. Copperbrain looked over to his glasses at them both. Angel wasn't sure who was talking at to this time, so kept her mouth shut, glancing at her mother. And all my ups and downs, you know. I separated from my her father recently, but it's been fairly amicable. She still had a stupid voice on, but it's getting even more high-pitched. Her mother liked to pretend everything was fine, even though it had been years since her, her dad left home. He started talking about her again, and Angel looked down at her feet. A safe environment for pupils and staff. Zero tolerance, penalties, blah, fucking blah. He wanted to die. He wanted to die. So Mr. Pickering said with such fin- finality, Angel looked up at him. I have spoken to my senior colleagues. The decision is we are suspending Angel for two days. The reasons for exclusion of abusive and bullying behaviour and violence towards other and other people. Blah, blah, blah. On the bus home, her mother was more upset about having to leave work early than about the violence and the suspension. It was raining outside, and the bus smelled of damp clothes. I just got a promotion, and when you just start acting up, this is the third time in almost as many months I had to leave work and go to the school. She made that out that she was some kind of high flyer instead of a college finance officer. Her mother's job sounded stupid and boring. Angie rooted in her school bag and found a half-eaten packet of harambo. She hunched down in the seat, the seat and began to it. Intense sweetness and rubbery texture smoothed her. Where do you get those? Bought them, Donna. I told you before, don't call me that. With what? Dad gave me money on Wednesday, Saturday. Her mother exhaled it from her down her nose. Angie smiled and put another two sweets in her mouth at once. Well, you shouldn't be buying sweets. That's for sure. You be careful, young lady. We're getting heavy. It's not very attractive. Angela put three sweets in her mouth and faced her mother for a few seconds as she chewed her mouth open, but her mood was had darkened. She no longer felt the same comfort from the sugar rush as if Donna was the hottest chicken town with fat thighs and a charity shop clothes and a home dyed hair. No wonder father left. It didn't make her an effort. She heard him say, to her mother once, while Angela had been listening from upstairs. She looked out of the bus window at the buses passing on the Bolton Road and a staff calf sandwich scar, diva cuts, Morley's chicken burgers and ribs, Portland wines, and bus moved slowly round the green curve at, of Ashburton Park. Well, you're grounded anyway, her mother continued. No tablet, no phone, no sweets till the end of the week. Who gives a... What... They got off the bus and tramped in the rain to the house. Angela hated home since her father had gone. It felt empty and smelled different. She got left her school bag full to the let her school bag fall to the floor, brought her hands up to her face. They smelled of blood and horrible, salt, sweat and sweet. She wanted to die. She just she wanted to die. Why are you standing there just like that? Hang your coat up. Make put your stuff away. What's wrong with you? You're what's wrong with me. 
Angel screamed. Suddenly, so loud it seemed to come from her belly. A scream scratched her throat and brought tears to her eyes as it left her. She felt as if she had a monster inside her. She felt like two parts, the inside of an outer shell. The shell was thinner than the eggshell. It offered little protection. Every so often, the inside reached out as the people saw she was real. Everyone hated her just as much as she hated herself. Her mother, who had been too tired for anger until now, was shocked at first, but when her but then her face set itself for combat. Low brows, white, pinched lips. Andrew stood waiting, needing something from Aunt Bradonna, hoping it would be strong. It matched the rage that was welling up inside her. Rage. That was it. That was what was possessing her. That was why she'd been beaten skinny. Stupid Jasmine made her bleed, ripped out her hair. The rage. That was why she refused to get the graduates any longer. It wasn't the high school was too hard or hormones a surgeon, it was because she was seething as, a f- as they faced off. Whatever anger Donna had mustered began to elaborate, evaporate, and g- uh, d- her eyes shone with tears. Why are you like this? Why do you have to d- be like this? I left to do everything. I don't get any thanks. You love your dad, but what do I get? He loves me, Angela screamed again, scratchy, squally, scaly, cold fist. Her voice punching into the hallway. Real tears now. Donna was crying real tears. Angela hated that. And then when her mother cried, an awful shape of her mother's mouth, as it had been torn. Yes, you love yes, you love him. You with him you're all sweetness and shite. But you what do I get? Just a shite. I hate you, Angela cried. The rage was on her fingertips now, tink tingle and itch. She wanted to fight against again. Wanted to rip out hair, and bloody lips and noses. Wanted to kick and punch and scream. I hate you too, you fucking monster. monster. Go to your room and stay there. It was it was enough. It was strength that Angel needed, not, but not what she had wanted. She wanted something physical—a shake, a slow slap. She wanted toughness, grounding physically. But she had been given was enough. Donna hated her. She had actually heard that before, though she had suspected it was calming to set in her mind. She wanted to, she wanted to die. She just wanted to die. She went upstairs and slammed the bedroom door, then went to the far corner of the room and sat down, hugging her knees. She pushed her kneecaps right into the sockets of her eyes. She liked the bright lights that came and pain in the middle of her head. After a few moments, she had a, a, to uncurl herself and take a breath. She'd done that since she was little, but now her belly was a fat. It cut off her breathing. she put on a lot of weight recently. It was true. She didn't care. She wanted to be massive. She wanted people to turn away when they saw her. She wanted everyone to see the monster as she was on the inside. She looked up at the be- her bedroom, well walls decorated with her drawings and paintings. She won a natural prize when she was in primary for drawing a flamingo. Her figure was framed from a wall alongside a huge poster-sized painting of Carrie Page's fate that Angela had done in art class on the first week of the corridor of the gallery. It wasn't perfect, teacher said. All the other kids in the class had crowded round her when she was finished and said it was amazing. Whatever 
Angela looked at the painting. You mind of uh, that feeling of having created something to be admired. It felt like love, or how she expected to feel. On all fours, four, she crawled into the bed, to the bed, and pulled her um, old music box as she's hidden underneath. The music box was no longer made of sound, but it still had a tiny ballerina and a spring, though she was too no longer dance. Inside the box was a, was a diamond ring and a chain. As she'd done many times before, Angie slid up the ring into her finger and mired it, tilting her finger up at, one, at the end, and she flashed the ring from side to side, even though her fingers had got fatter. The ring was too big for her. She unhooked the chain and fastened it around her neck, closing her fist over the diamond and holding it against her heart. Diamond was the most expensive jewel. The jewel ring meant she was beloved. She wanted to be loved more than anything, but didn't feel as she had expected. Love was such a shock. It felt like being held under water. Also inside the music box was a packet of 30 aspirin but she'd taken from the kitchen early in the week. She'd been keeping them for a moment, just like this. She popped the pills and the packet into the bedside, bedspread. When all the tablets had been punched out, Angela scooped them up into her fist. She glanced at her drawings on the wall, wondering if she could really do it. Then she remembered that her mother hated her, with the same accent compulsion as she'd eaten the jelly sweets on the bus. Angie put one tablet after another in the mouth and washed them down with flat co coke and they'd been sitting open and dressed her since the day before. She hadn't had enough. She didn't have enough in a dresser since the day before. She hadn't had enough coke for the last few bills and got stuck in the throat. She had to rush to the bathroom and straight drink straight out of the tap of water to wash them down. She went back into her room, put the light on and curled up in the bed. Her clothes still on, pressing the diamond ring against her chest. She had no, she had left her note. That was all right. You're born and then you just die. You're born and then you die. Two, Nick. It was a Friday, like any other. Marina was watching fresh shrimp from Nick while Nick was upstairs bathing the children. Arugola was breathing and the kitchen filled with the smell of garlic as Marie's famous paella cooked on the stove, the rice fattling with the juices of tomato and onion. Friday's Marina. Marina got home from work about six and liked to stay in. Get the kids to bed, then they could relax and talk. Friday night, they could focus on each other. It was their favourite time of the week. Nick had fed the kids just before Marina got home. Fish finger... Baked beans for f at five. The other children were in the bath together. Ava four, who made, who, Ava four was making cakes and soap suds while Nick had to pretend to eat. Elstisco, Ava said, grinning with her tiny shoulders, raised to her ears in joy. Both the children were bilingual. They didn't, they wasn't strict about it. Marina st tried to speak only Spanish to them. Nick stuck to English. Ava still sometimes mixed it up. Six-year-old Luca was making a moroccan with his wet hair. Dad, Luca said, face sunny, serious, sunning his hand. 
his hair still on end. What makes the tops of your fingers go all wrinkly? Just because the water makes them soft, Nick replied, not looking at his son, but massaging shampoo to Eva's hair. It was a question, Luca, that he was not sure how to answer. If he answered too fully, Luca would ask another, yet another difficult question. Nick laving up Eva's dark curly hair. It hurt, she cried out. Tears sudden, tears suddenly, sudden but brief. Hurting me, sorry. Raina was naturally gentle. She said Nick didn't realise his own strength. I hate you, said Raina. Sulking, but no longer crying. You're not to say hate, Luca corrected. By what? Well, I love you, said Nick, effectively using one of Ava's Tupperwares as he had used as a pretend cake tins to rinse her hair. Dad, said Luca, frowning earnestly. Uh, huh? You know how all of us in our family have got brown eyes? Yep. Do you? But you've got blonde hair, and me, Mum and Ava have got dark brown. Yep. Nick raised his eyebrows as he want, waited for the question. Luca still had on his Mohican, the sonority of his face beneath the ridiculous hairstyle made Nick smile. Well, why don't you, one of us, get get your blonde hair? Like I have, I have big, big your big toes. Uh, I don't know. I think the gene for dark hair stronger, so it cancels the mine out. The gene? Nick panicked, knowing he got himself in trouble. He would go go on for weeks, not months. Would communicate in hours of on the internet, learning facts. He could break it down for his son. I'll look into it and explain tomorrow. He was sure that other fathers got away with that as an answer, but his son always remembered. Luca never forgot when an explanation was owed to him. He lifted Luca out and toweled him dry, leaving Ava in the bath and water drained. She liked to lie down and pull, feel the pool of water sucking her to the bath. Else he would kneel and watch the whirlpool go up close. Dry Luca left the bathroom and street down the hall and then back. Look at me, I'm running around naked. He wiggled, giggled, wiggled his bum and made a fresh, funny face. On his knees, Nick could help, could help him laughing at him. Go, get your pyjamas on. He looked down and saw that his t-shirt was already soaked through. Come on, missy. Nicholas lifted Ava out of the bath and wrapped a towel around her, swaddling her like a baby. Have you forgotten me? She, always, she nodded abstractly, lashes wet over her huge brown eyes. Do I, do I get a kiss then? She tilted her head coldly, then lunged forward and kissed her on the lips. She sat back at the heels, stunned. That's my girl. He scooped her up. Luca was at the top of the stairs, battling his pyjama top, head in the armpit. Rusty, the ten-year-old border collie, with his nose and paws watching him, only his eyebrows moving. Marie and Nick had got Rusty when they lived in a flat in Balham. A dog had become used to life for them before children when he had been centre of attention, excitedly disapproving the stoic, allowing ears and tail to be gently pulled and fur to be soaked against the grain. The dog always seemed grateful for the children's bedtime. Now Rusty watches Nick pass with Eva, Eva in his hand, arms in the bedroom. Nick has unwrapped Eva from her towel and branched 
up her pyjamas top so she could put on her head through. She ran away from him, climbing on the bed and jumping up and down. He caught her and tickled her, throwing a raspberry around Betty, and then held her between his thighs. So he, he put the top over her head and tugged her arms through. He bent to kiss her hot lit cheeks as he pulled on her bottoms. This was story time on being big bean bag in Lucas' room. Marina was reading him as Lopes felt fables in Spanish at the hare and the tortoise. But when it was Nick's turn, the children always tortured him by asking him not, not for a story, but a performance. Nick's hungry caterpillar slurped and lurched, antennas twinking under arms and ears. His witches crackled crampily and screeched. His giants made a floor shake. Fee fi fo fum, causing Ava and Lucas to squeal with laughter. Sometimes we tried to read something quietly and normally, but they always pled for characters and voices, promising not to get too excited to get straight to sleep. Tonight, he tried to be te- a timid rumpelstiltskin, but Luca was unimpressed. Dad, read it properly. I am. Do your funny voice and jumping up and down, Luca stabbed with his foot, feet in intimidation. In, in, in Tomorrow, when Nick, Nick finally made it downstairs, bare feet, Jean still damp, wearing a t-shirt, Marina had lit the candles and poured him a glass of wine. She picked up her phone, prone, juice-stained bunny on the stairs and fired it into a toy box in the corner of the room as he let out a long sigh. The kitchen window was steamed up and smelt. The smell made his stomach rumble. He was hungry. He spent most of his day at school in Croydon. His fourth week delivering a series of dramas workshops to a lower school. He'd been eating properly since breakfast and Snickers and white, fat white a car before he picked up Ava and Luca from their childminder. He sighed. As he looked at the long bare wood table, but daring to relax for the first time that day, he rubbed his eyes with the heels of his hands. Two plates were on the table, the cutlery set on top. Crusty bread was being torn among them. Tired, Maria said, standing up by the stove, but her dark hair swept in a messy bun. She was wearing a favourite navy tracksuit bottoms, tucked into his old fleece-lined hiking socks, a bright blue sweatshirt, the shoulder and un- cut off so her brown stomach showed when she stretched to turn off the tractor van. A bone of her wrist was exquisite as she reached out for a rain glass. Nick circled his arms around her before she caught the glass. He put his two hands over the gentle swell of her stomach and then ran over, um, over, over the easy gives of her waistband, a cup that bare behind her with both hands. She leaned her head back towards him and rested it on his shoulder. He kissed her neck, and then she turned, draping her hands over his shoulder. She backed against the counter. It leaned into her pelvis, to pelvis. It was sleep. She looked up into his eyes. He loved his face. He loved her face, oval, oval, skin, olive skin, eyes like their daughter's, fathomless, chocolate brown. The careful arch of her brow, a cut of her cheekbone, almost jarring with her eyes, making. Her seemed sculptured, detached, intelligible. Four lips and a space between her front teeth, crinkles at the corners of her eyes. 
a mole just below her left lower lid, like a black tear. Of course they're asleep. I am the master. You refused to do the voices, so they fell asleep out of boredom. No, I gave them my best performance. Actually, put a lot onto it. You're a little liar. They got back and forth for a moment, breathing with each other. They didn't always make it. But Fridays, when they were good, were just like this. Remembering what they were lovers, two distinct persons, people. Often the week would rush apart, apart in furry work, parenting, friends and family commitments. So they felt they were only really together in the early hours of the morning, entangled in each other's arms. But warm smell, others' warm smell. And sometimes, not even then, it was a nightmare of monsters, like little ones creeping into the hall in fear. Luca would lift the covers and slip in besides Marina. But Ava always went to Nick, curled in a ball, the crook of his arm. That's eat. Pulls of curled, curled white and top of the scarlet whites. Nick sank into a wooden chair, ran his fingers through his hair as Marina spooned portions into plates. Could could eat a horse, he said, tucking it in right away, biting to a succulent piece of rabbit. They could each talk about the, they would each talk about their days. Marina liked to go first. He prepared to listen. Do you remember that defense bid I was working on? Marina peeled a footfall and licked her finger. Olive oil making her lips glisten. Nick nodded. He had taken a too big a mouthful and the rice was too hot. He little he took little sips of the air to cool it down as it continued. You won't believe it. Nick Cheeser found out about it, and now she's trying to mastermind everything. She opened her eyes wide and dunked her bread in oil and washed it down with wine. She's so patronizing, so many micromanaging. It makes me insane. It's a wonderful piece of work, she tells me, with that stupid smile she has. It has to go on the board. That's bad, right? The bid's going to the, the, go the board, I mean. Nick raised an eyebrow. Yes, of course the board will hack around it with it, and it will come nothing like I wrote. But it isn't the worst thing. She wants me to increase the bid by 50 grand. Fifty fucking grand. You've been listening to an extract from Little Liar, from the number one best-selling author, Lisa Ballonade, available on Amazon.com. Mark Pocosha, reading a bit of poetry. Following was from an actual day poetry day book. Messages by Matt Goodfellow. Look closely and you'll find them everywhere. In fields of patterned grasses drafted by the hare. Embroidered, embroidered by the bill bells through a wood in scattered trails of blossom stamped in the mud. 
scorched by heather fire across the moors, in looping snail trails, scored on forest floors, scored across the sky by screaming swifts, in rolling twist peaks of drifting mountain mist, scribbled by an ocean on the sand, look closely you'll see and understand. Bookworm, I heard of a wonder words moth eaten. This strange thing I thought weird. A man's song we swallowed by a worm. His blinded sentence, his bedside stand by. Rustled in the night, no robber guessed. But not one whit the wiser, the words he mumbled. Anon, translated by Michael Alexander. Cat meshes, similar the cat whose ancestors prowled amongst the pyramids today, received a special visitor, Ni Hoffa Topper Hoffa, ambassador for the consolation of Orion, upon Nifa Hoffa Topper's departure, Shima tried her best to warn her mistress of Nifa Hoffa Topper's Earth's message that Earth is about to be invaded, Shima. Lay on the carpet and made letters shapes. Her body, with her body invasion, Shima brought a dead vole and scraps of bark into the kitchen, arranged them in the symbol Oak Raran, which is organized for you have been invaded by hideous aliens from the constellation Andromeda. But she has only reward for efforts. What's the same, some tin cat food? Humans, thought Shima, can be so dumb. Message to Peter Tucker. Tell you, cold and blue on all the mountains. From opening rain that beat all day. By my thatched door, leaning on my staff, I learned to seek us in the evening wind. Sunset lingers at the ferry. Cooking smoke floats up with the house. Oh, when shall I pledge Cherry again and sing a more poem of five widows? Wing, wang, waye. The glass bower dances. The words first appeared on a lamppost on a dirty road behind a chip shop and some tired Turkish baths. They nestled amongst fat, curdless sponges of paint on the and screams to get us out here and from far future. Reading the phrase, passers by smiled briefly. I thought no more about it, but the words tucked in themselves into the minds of the people on the bus. Two days later, the handwriting was seen again. A wall along a cycle path, besides a hospital, sick children, a cafe, a toilet, and down near where the ships no longer came, people began to repeat it to themselves in the early morning on the streets. Phrase swelled out. It appeared on the backs of school books and on library books desks. It moved beyond the city. It was written on a rock on a beach full of living, living birds on a bench beside a bus stop in a small grey town. It had been carved down the, cu- the curve of a mountain, a glass bow of dances. As the words swelled, people began to talk. A feature was broadcast on local news, and some of them were courteous, curious, and searched for understanding on YouTube. We moved, but not enough to understand the rhyme that came from the feet, from earth to breathe, to arm, a flow of skill and exhaustion, dogged passion, 
that was required for the alchemy of changing dirt into something fluid, strong, and beautiful. The word grew. The city council talked of the cost of cleaning. They could not calculate its accuracy. Accurately. A well-heeled sorts of late-night sofa spoke of the shallowness of modern culture, lamented the loss of the canyon. But the thing without a scratch, if you feel it, and sometimes lets you in, they incubriate and fester. Some academics wrote a paper on the psychological infrastructural significance of urban public expression, but it's rather long and only read by eight people. The linguists spoke of succulents, how they traced the brain from fingers of smoke. Historians expounded on the history of glassmaking, how China, knowing it until the 17th century, invented fireworks instead of windows. A phrase didn't stop any walls or bankers. There were other words to try the, that job. It was it was beyond this writer's ability at this time. But people smiled for a moment, left, felt something in chest that loosened and wondered about things that did not touch their lives. All this happened. Because once upon a time, somebody without, wrote upon a wall with joy. Glassboro dances. Rachel will come. Avoris and the, the Carpenter by Lois Carroll. From Through the Looking Glass. Recited by Tweedledum and Tweedledee. The sun was shining on the sea, shining all his might. He did his very, very best to make the bellows smooth and bright. And this odd, this was odd because it was the middle of the night. The moon was shining sulkily because she thought of the sun. He had no business to be here, there after the day was done. It's very rude of him, she said, to come and spoil the fun. The sun was wet as wet could be. The sand was dry, were dry as dry. They could not see a cloud because no cloud was in the sky. The flowers were flying overhead. The birds are flying overhead. There are no birds to fly. The warriors and the carpenter were walking close at hand. They wet like anything. They wet like anything to see. Such qualities of sand. If they were only cleared away, they said it would be grand. In seven maids, the seven mots swept it for half a year. Do you suppose, the warriors said, they could get it clear? I doubt it, said the carpenter, and shed a bitter tear. Waste has come and walk with us, a beach did beseech, a pleasant walk, a pleasant talk, along the briny beach. We can't go with more than four, to give a hand to each. The oldest oyster looked at him, but never a word he said. The oldest oyster winked his eye and shook his heavy head, meaning to say he did not choose to leave the oyster bed. But four young oysters hurried up, all eager for the treat. Their brushes were brushed. Her coats were brushed, their faces washed, their shoes were cleaned and neat. This was odd, because, you know, he didn't have any feet. Four of her oysters followed them, yet other four. A thick and fast they came at last, more and more and more, all hopping through the fluffy waves, scrambling to the shore. A warrior and the carpenter walked on a mile, a mile and a mile or so, when they rested on rock really low, all the little oysters stood and waited in a row. The time has come, said Warris, said, to talk of many things, of shoes, 
from ships, from sealing wax, of cabbages and kings. Why the sea is boiling hot, why pigs have wings. Well, wait, wait, wait a bit, said Oyster, said Oyster cried. Before we have our chat, for some of us are out of breath, and not of all us are fat. No hurry, said the carpenter. I, they thanked him very much for that. A loaf of bread, said the walrus, the walrus said. Is that we chiefly need? Pepper and vinegar Here besides. A loaf of bread, and Morris said, if there be briefly need, pepper and vinegar besides. They're very good indeed. Now, we, now if you're ready, oysters, dear. We can't, we begin to feed. We not, we, but not all of us, the oyster cried, turning a little blue. After such kindness, to, that, would be, that would be a dismissal thing to do. The night is fine, the Morris said. Do you admire the view? If you're kind to you, you to come, if you're very nice, the carpenters do nothing but cut us another slice. I wish it was not so much. I wish you were not quite so deaf. I had to ask you twice. It seems a shame that Boris said to play such a trick. After we brought him out so far, I made him and trot so quick. The carpenters said nothing but the butter's spread too thick. I weep for you, the Morris said. I deeply sympathise with sobs and tears he had sorted out those of the largest size, holding his basket, his hanker, pocket handkerchief before his dreaming eyes. Oh, oysters, said the carpenter. You've had a pleasant run. Still, shall we be trotting home again? The answer came, there none. There's a scarcely odd because they're eaten. Everyone, Lewis Carroll. Stonehenge. I remember Stonehenge in the days when they still got close to the stones. I remember being here, seeing their bulk and feeling their solid substance. If the past broke close, I could hear the trick of the time, the heartbeat of history. If only stones that were transmitters, they couldn't broadcast their story. Answer the wise. A Stonehenge why Stonehenge was playing gained such a monument. Why it was built? Was it a temple or a tomb? If only we could summon solutions from the sky, the clouds, the hills, from these witness to the march, of those monoliths to the positioning and the raising. If we all, all we knew but built this circle, for moon, the winter sun, as the sun is dark on the day, did they ever imagine the puzzle they were leaving behind? I wonder again the thread behind the present and the past, and all those who stood by those stones, hoping to hear some sort of message, to the living and the from the from, to the living and the dead, to one of many history's one of history's mysteries must be solved at last by Moses.
I am Tazadin. I sing a perfect meter. I am Tazadin. I sing a perfect meter, which will last the end of the world. My patron is Ephethin. I know why there's an echo in a hollow, why black silver gleams, why breath is black, why liver is bloody, why why a cow has horns, why a woman is affectionate, why milk is white, why holly is green, why a kid is bearded, why a cow's lip is hollow, why brine is salt, why ale is bitter, why the inlet is green and the berries red, why a cuckoo complains, why it sings. I know where the where the cuckoo of the summer are in winter. I know where the beasts are when they're at the bottom of the sea. How many spears in battle? How many drops in the shower? How many uh, how why a river drowned Pharaoh's people? Why fishes have scales? Why a white snail has swan as black feet? I've been a blue salmon. I've been a dog a sag, a roebuck on the mountain, a stock a spade an axe in the hand, a stallion a bull a buck. I was reaped and placed in an oven. I fell to the ground when I was being roasted. A hen followed, swallowed me. For nine nights I was, uh, I, I was in her crop. I have been dead. I have been alive. I am Tez. Tez in in. Anon. Chinese whispers. Poetry whispers in a disco. But sometimes there is someone there who can read lips and why... Mouthback, would you like to dance? I'd love to read the lips of silence. Live, it whispers, and heard loud and clear. I hear it loud and clear. I pass the message on. You see, that's why I move. The word, the word love, oh, suddenly it always silent. No one speaks but smiles. Everybody dances. Shelly country. Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? You are, you, you are a manuscript with a divine letter. You are a mirror reflecting a noble face. This universe is not outside of you. Look outside you yourself. Everything that you want. You are already that. Rummy. Rummy. Note to self. Pop to the butchers for some meat. Get my feet back to the street. A magazine and six fresh... Six farm eggs. Plus a stretch... Chance to stretch my legs. Maybe choose a chunk of cheese. Feel fresh life brought on the breeze. Milk and yogurt tub of cream. Drift and dawdle and daydream. Bush and liquid. Food for cats. A time for smiles and little chats. Some for biscuits and loaf of bread. Feel the sun and clear in my head. In the chemist buy some tissues. Discuss the local issues. Shall I buy some shampoo? Oh, hi, good morning. How do you do? Treat myself to perfumed soap? Not to sad ladies. Helps her cope. Message herself. Take the time to wonder, to smile, to laugh, and talk and wonder. Take the time to ponder and to see. Take the time to breathe the air. Take time to be. Miss Kalia Morgan. From the Riverlet by Omar. Carrera. The moving fingers rights have writ. Moves on, nor shall I fret fifty nor wit. Thou sh- shall lurk it back to cancer half a line. Not all my tears wash out a word of it. 
a Manchester translated by Edward Fitzgerald. Written in What in the World. I left you a message in the apple tree. Blossom, I said. I meant you to be strong and happy. I meant you to grow and shine. I know you will be beautiful. You are so loved. How could you not? Could you not? I left you in a, a message in the rivers of the tides about the comings and goings, the way things keep on being new. The sky is full of scribbled notes. Songbird and blue, storm cloud, hailstone, blizzard, strangers. But bad things are not forever. The same are true for all weathers in your heart. You don't forget the message in a snail. The unexpected hamsters are shells. Trails of un- silver underneath your feet that let you know the things you eat are precious garden shoots or more than pests have a secret loneliness that's all their own. Jean Dean Summer is a coming in. Summer is a coming in. Holy is singing comers. Groth seedeth and bloweth mid and springeth the mud water yard singeth coming in. Ale bleeth of the loom, ladeth of a calf come, Balik sigeth, bicky vereth, Morris sing come you. Come you, come you, will singeth thou, come you, let sinky, swinky na, navy you. Sing a choreo, you, sing a choreo, sing choreo, sing choreo. A modern version, summer has last come in, loudly sing cuckoo. Seas are grown, filled meadows, full-blown. Leaf buds are open to make green woods sing cuckoo. Ewes bleat at their lambs, cows low at their calves. Young bulls dart and young butts fart. Merrily sing cuckoo, cuckoo, sing well, cuckoo. Never, never stop. Sing cuckoo, sing cuckoo, sing cuckoo. Sing now cuckoo, sing new cuckoo. Sing cuckoo and mum. Hold me to the mirror, light. And make me my. I can't read that. I can't read it. Oranges and lemons, said the bells of St. Clements. You owe me five farthings, says the bells of St. Martins. Will you pay me, says the bells of Old Bailey. How I grow, how rich, says the bells of Strawbridge. When will it be, says the bells of Stepney? I don't know, says the great bell of Bow. How does a candle delight you? To... Here come, comes a candle to light you to bed, and here comes a copper to chop off your head. Chopper to chop off your head. Along. The greatest message. Embrace his feeling we feel faith, believe in love, in hope and faith. Learn to love as we have been loved by the idealism of our youth. The time to banish all those means that has invaded and sour our dreams. In time to turn our back on our backs on all forces that attack. 
time to act, it's time to face the powers that erode our faith. A faith passed down that we inherit a strength within the human spirit. It's time to see for the grown-up eyes, once and for all, to realise that love is love is love is love, and nothing to be frightened of. Yes, love is love is love is love is love, like black and white, like hand in glove, patient, kind of from above. Yes, love is love is love is love. So keep the faith, keep hold tight and hold. Hope for the future to be dream for faith, hope and love. These three remain the greatest of all is all love. Paul Cookson From St Peter's letter to Corinthians Corinthians chapter thirteen. If I speak in tongues of man of angels, do not do not but do not have love. I am a resounding gong of a clanging cymbal. Love is patient, love is kind, love is but envy, love does not boast. It is not proud, it does not dishonour, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always preserves. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I was reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of a child behind me. For we, for now we, was, you only see the reflection in the mirror. You should, we should see a face to face. And now, now I know in part, then shall I know fully. And though these three remain, faith, hope and love. The greatest of these is love. Dear B, thank you for your friendly buzz. That's always that's just a no unique to us. It's always busy paid time hours. You spend quality and quality flowers. Helping grow the food we need and for gathering nectar sweet and making honey bright as trumpets to drift on our toasted crumpets. And through a weapon on the wing, thanks for preferring not to sting. Yours, me. B, I've been expecting you. Was yes, was something was saying yesterday that something you know that that you do. The frogs got home last week. I settled at work, but mostly black to clothe them warm and thick. You got my letter by the seventeenth. Apply or better, be with me. Yours, fly. London, not some diesel many daza zika de diveda ravikik. This is a like Belina, this some great day. The roof does nozerin vidza und zid damp street. A dwet of road rain hot hot vul hub ti cheesy on the hemiset. Tis visi in fact why should I mind that I try the buses hack kunto kunto eskin me for not I really don't is strictly remember peace peace to him my penny I have left.
You not as for the net well, Frank's love. He sees I my am his love. Turns metal or machine, but the coats are twinkle. This is honor I own that here to settle. It's okay this city will be home. So off to the city a bus is alive. Written by Sophie Hamilton Poems to Jack Rebecca. They look quickly, they look hugely. Look, took the mountains and the entrails. They took our coal, they took our steel. They, from us, they, they took us also this crystal. They took the sugar, they took the clover. They took the north, they took the west. They took the hive, they took the haystack. They took the south from us, they took the east. Very, the, they took the Tartarus, they took. They took the near at hand and far away, but worse than taking paradise and earth from us, they won the battle for our native land. Bullets they took from us, they took our rifles, minerals, they took comrades too, but while our nails have spit on them, this whole country is still armed. Maria Tereska transmitted, translated by Elaine Fisserstein. What one what, what what you might write? Picture the place that you call home. Let's draw its shape on an outline of paper, feel it was. Now tell me on the view of the window, do you see a man over there? Or a woman, maybe somebody maybe who looks over your shoulder at the words here, there, or both takes both your hands, looks you in the eyes, just briefly so you know when. Tell me how the empty chair is for and might write on a postcard home as you sit on a small desk with a small bright lamp, the moth scattering. Deborah Alam Alma. Where go the boats? Dark brown is the river, golden is the sand. It follows along forever with sands on every hand. Green leaves are floating, castles of foam, boats of wine of boating. Where will they go home? Oh, goes the river, out past the mill, way down the valley, way down the hill, way down the river, a hundred miles or more. Other little children shall bring my boats ashore. Robert Louis Stevenson. Just a message. Ask the mother if you've seen my phone. Tell your father I haven't seen it. Ask your mother to bring my phone. Tell your father, I am on the phone. Tell your mother, I need my phone. Tell your father, he needs a look. Tell your mother, I have looked. Tell your father, look again. Tell your mother to please get off the phone. Tell your father, I will in a minute. Tell your mother, my train is leaving. Tell your father, my battery is dead. Joseph Corsillo. Dear March, come in. Dear March, come in. How glad I am. I looked for you before. Put down your hat. You must have walked. How out of breath you are. Dear March, how are you? And the rest, did you leave nature well? Oh, March, please c- come right upstairs. You mean you have a, so much to tell. I got your letter and the birds and ma- maples never knew. They were coming, I declare, how red their faces grew. But March, forgive me, and all those hills you left me to you. They're no people suitable. You took it all with you. What knocks, what that April? Lock the door. 
I'll be, I will not be pursued. You stayed away a year. So cool when I'm occupied. But trifles look so trivial. As soon as you, as they, that you, as soon as you, you have come. A blame is just as dear as a phrase. Phrase is mere as blame. Eminent Nicholson. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I hit you. I'm sorry that I laughed. I'm sorry I said that you look nick like a giraffe. I'm sorry I spattered you. I'm sorry that I kicked you. I'm sorry that I told you. I'm sorry that I tricked you. I'm sorry I took your lunch. I made fun of your cat. I'm sorry I said I'd rather make friends with a rat. I'm sorry I trick- tickled you and sent you nasty texts. I'm sorry I stole your coat. I hid your specs. I'm sorry I didn't stop when you said that's enough. I'm sorry I picked a fight and tried to look all tough. I'm sorry I did that at all. I don't mean to spite you. I only did these things because, in fact, I really like you. I'm sorry for the things I did. I know it's strange to mention. I only did these things to get you give me attention. So you give me attention. I hope you forgive me. This poem made you see that I'm really sorry. Will you go out with me, Miss Josepha Sigal? The letter, with a BFD, June 10th, dear wife. I'll blast this pencil, uh, Bill. Needs a, needs a, lends a knife. I'm in a pink at present, dear. I think the war will be over this year. We didn't see much of them square-ends. We're out of arms way, not bad, Fed. I'm longing for a taste of your buns. Say, J- Jamie, spare a bite of butter bread. But how much... They didn't see much to say just now. Yeah, well, that what? They don't, you bloody cow. And give us back me cigarettes. I'll soon be home. You mustn't fret. My feet's improving, as I told you, I told of you, told you of. We're out in the rest now. Never fear. Back my crumbs. What was that? That was near. Mother might spare you. Be you half a sob. Kiss now with Bert, where me and you. Huh? What's that? What's that? Oh, what's that? Stand to, stand to. Jim gives a hand with a pack on lad. Go, Christ, I'm it. Take hold. I buy. No, damn you, ID. Jim, uh, dear, my girl, Jim. There's a dear. Wilfred Owen. This is Hobbsy Martin Podcast Show, and he's been reading poems from the book produced in 2016.